Hello and welcome to this special episode of Tennessee on Supply Chain Management. I'm Tom Goldsby. I'm joined by my good friend, Ted Stank, as always for the Tennessee on Supply Chain Management podcast. And as indicated, this is a special episode. Uh, From time to time, we want to kind of break from the norm. Maybe things are just a little too hot and too pressing to wait until the next broadcast. And, And that's the situation with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's now about two weeks in progress, and it's having considerable implications on global societies, certainly, uh, business, economics, and also on supply chains. And, and that's what we want to focus on today. And so, Ted, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a read on what you're seeing in terms of the conflict and how it's impacting our supply chains? Sure, Tom. Thanks. Of course, in addition to the humanitarian crisis that we're all seeing and witnessing uh, almost in real time on the news and cell phones and videos, and it's, which is somewhat unprecedented, there's a lot of supply chain implications emerging from this conflict. Russia is one of the largest, if not the largest exporter of petroleum in the world. Not much coming into the United States, only 3%, but of course, it's going to impact global oil markets and therefore the prices we see at the pump. Um, In addition to oil, major food exports coming out of both Russia and Ukraine, 30% of global wheat supplies, 20% of global corn supplies, other commodity markets like nickel that goes into a number of traditional industries like steel, but also increasingly in green technology. So it's going to have a tremendous impact across the board on a lot of the staples that we buy that impact prices. In addition, from a global shipping standpoint, Odessa is a major Black Sea port for exports of oil, total standstill on shipping in and out of the Black Sea, so shutting off a pretty significant flow of oil and product from there. Not to mention the implications it's had on global financial markets, international trade and trade relations, etc. So obviously, this goes way beyond your and my areas of expertise in the supply chain, Tom. We're, we're somewhat lagging indicators of what this is. And so to try to take a deeper dive, we brought in our good friend, Marianne Wanamaker. Marianne is exactly Executive Director of the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy and a professor of economics at University of Tennessee. She has, over her time, confronted a lot of the issues in economics that flow over into supply chain management and is increasingly becoming our go-to economist in terms of how economics impacts supply chain. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Marianne and ask if Marianne has a, a take on what's going on over in Russia, Ukraine, with respect to global economics and and more specifically, how it relates to supply chain conditions. First of all, glad you're doing this session. I mean, I think things are changing so quickly. I was just with a friend the other day that this started as a political crisis. And so all of my friends who are political scientists, their phones were literally ringing off the hook. And that lasted about four days. And then it became overnight an economic crisis. And that began really with the implementation of sanctions. That's what turned this into an economic crisis just as much as it is a political crisis. Or perhaps said another way, it turned into a crisis where economic expertise became really important. It's being fought on two sort of two battlefields. There's the physical war that's going on in Ukraine. And then there's also this kind of economic war, which the U.S. is leading in collaboration with its partners in Europe and elsewhere to sort of drive the Russian economy into the ground and make it infeasible for Putin to hang on to power. That is that's the goal of the, of the economic war. So I have few insights on the political war, but the economic war, of course, is why we're here. Uh, at least, you know, why people would turn to this podcast. 
really, Jed, I think you summed up the supply chain issue, which is that, gosh, we put yet another wrinkle in supply chains that were already in crisis. That's going to continue, we think, to drive up the price of goods and services in the United States, making it difficult for the Fed to control inflation. That's kind of my lens on, on much of this is what does this mean about the Fed? What are they going to have to do? And so I, I want to talk for a minute about, you know, you mentioned driving up oil and gas prices. So I want to spend a little bit of time there. I think something that is not appreciated necessarily by the general public is that the last time we went through a real oil crisis in the 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, and then even again when we faced really high gas prices in 2008, maybe one thing that was different then than now is that at the time, the United States was a net importer of gas and oil. And now the United States is a net exporter. And so take inflation out of it for just a second. And suppose that we had inflation under control and all of a sudden someone said, oh, the price of oil is really high. Well, being a net exporter of oil means there are more producers of oil in the United States than there are consumers of oil or production of oil is a bigger issue for us than consumption of oil. And what that means is that high gas prices are good quote unquote, for the American economy. It is a supply shock that benefits producers of which we have a ton. And what we should expect to see over the short run is that U.S. companies who couldn't make it work, who couldn't justify the cost of drilling under oil at $80 a barrel can totally justify it under oil at $115 a barrel. That's good for American GDP. It's good for production. It's actually really good for employment. And it is good for employment in precisely the demographics where we're suffering right now, which is lower skilled men. That's where a lot of our um, labor market participation weakness is living. And that's exactly who gets employed when the U.S. decides to produce more natural gas and more oil. Interesting. Very interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. From an internal supply chain management standpoint, production of oil and gas, we should see the halcyon days of the early shale scenario. You really kind of blow my mind there, Marianne, because you've presented a perspective that I've not seen or heard anywhere else, you know, and it really casts a different light on the circumstance. And I love that, you know, if we could take inflation out of it, of course, we can do that. And we'll be talking more about that. But I was wanting to pick up on you mentioned fiscal policy and Fed seemed to be on the verge of raising rates. And I've heard pre-conflict, there was plan of doing it multiple times over the course of this calendar year. What's your sense on, on where the Fed might be sitting now? And are, are those kind of on hold or is that kind of the injection that, that they think this uh, domestic economy needs anyway? I mean, they haven't backed off yet. So I, I will say a month ago, our certainty about whether the Fed was going to raise rates in March was 100%. Literally 99.999%, the Fed will raise rates in March. And the only question was whether they'll raise them by 25 or 50 basis points. Ukraine has thrown a wrench into that. And so backing up for a second, what is the Fed facing? So the Fed is facing a recovery in the U.S., particularly in the labor market, that is incomplete. And so the Fed would have loved to let the recovery continue for a little while longer and not raise rates, not tap the brakes when they don't have to. 
Unfortunately, inflation has backed them into a corner and said, yes, I understand that you have an employment mandate. You are supposed to be pushing the U.S. economy towards full employment. But your other mandate is the Fed is that you have pursued price stability. And so the Fed is responding and finally saying, "Okay, we can't let this inflation go any longer. We're going to have to raise rates. And March is our date. We commit to March. So now what's happened is I honestly think perhaps the worst case scenario. What Ukraine is doing is driving inflation higher precisely in goods and services that aren't going to be very responsive to the Fed tapping the brakes. In other words, there's nothing about gas prices that's going to change because the Fed raised rates 25, 50 or 75 basis points. So they have an inflation problem that is actually out of their control. And yet they know they have to do something. And the price of oil and gas, of course, it matters for the gasoline as it fits into the consumer price index. But it also is going to eventually bleed into a bunch of other products in their consumer price index. And it's doing that. Again, I think this is something that's not commonly appreciated. It's doing that at precisely the time that Americans are out of whack on how much they're spending on goods versus services. And we've talked about that on this podcast, right? If you're spending money on services, the price of gas is pretty irrelevant. As we're spending a bunch of money on goods, we're in a sense really susceptible to changes in gas prices because we're relying on a lot of shipping. And so we're in the worst possible position in terms of our our consumption allocations for this. And the Fed is in a really bad position because there's not a whole lot they can do about these prices. And so if you think that the Fed raising rates is somehow going to slow down inflation, they're actually going to have to hit the brakes really, really hard to be able to level out inflation under these circumstances, given how much gas prices have accelerated and how much Americans are spending on goods right now. And would you say there's an analogous situation with food prices, given the importance of the Russian and Ukrainian markets to wheat and corn? I mean, again, it's probably not going to hurt us in terms of availability, but in terms of global market prices, it should certainly see increases of our food supply, right? Inflation has been the result so far of a diminished supply and an enhanced demand right? And the Fed can do something about demand. They can't really do anything about supply. And what the Ukraine crisis is doing, as you just mentioned, it's making the supply crisis even worse. It's not really changing demand. (laughs) Okay. And so now the Fed is even less able to sort of deal with the problem as it presents itself. And yes, food, food is exactly a case of that or an example of that, which is that that's totally a supply story. And yet the only tool we have to address it right now is to try to limit Americans' demand. If you're the Fed, this is a really uncomfortable spot. Yeah. Do you agree with that comment that I made that as compared to like the Arab oil embargo of the early 70s, where there were lines for blocks for fuel, we're not going to have limits in our fuel, but rather it's going to be the price at the pump since we're a net exporter now? No, I don't anticipate that we're going to be queuing up for gasoline. That seems to be far off. There is, of course, a question about how quickly American production can ramp up. But my sense of the markets right now is that we are expecting gas prices to remain elevated for some period of time. And the longer that expectation extends, the faster you'll get new production in the U.S. online. So, for example, if producers thought that this was just a three-month crisis and then it'll be over, you would see very little ramp up. But if they expect this to last several years, then they'll ramp up very quickly because a bunch of people will be in the market and they'll try to be taking advantage. 
So for you transportation managers out there who just finished renegotiating your contract carrier prices and suffered the shock of 30 to 40% increases, stand by for fuel surcharges now, all right? Oh, absolutely. We're going on vacation in October and I'm thinking we better buy our plane tickets before they, <laughs> yeah, before exactly. they figure out how to add those charges to them. <laughs> and I'm someone who commutes about 500 miles from Eastern North Carolina to Knoxville, Tennessee, so... Yeah, you're feeling it, Ted. I think it's a poignant observation that Marion brings. I mean, certainly what we're paying at the pump, that's a critical component going into consumer price index. But then also recognizing that diesel is that common ingredient in everything that we buy. If it needs to move, it's probably being moved to, thanks to diesel energies. Yeah, we're going to see it on, on a multitude of fronts. And you know, that's something that we, you know, we try to do with our podcast is to bring it back to our audience, which is largely you know, shipper organizations, logistic service providers, and of course, our, our friends and students out there. You know, what, what kinds of implications do you think these economic foretellings are going to have on, on how folks need to conduct business? Uh, we mentioned maybe you know, trying to lock in prices and forward contracts, perhaps, you know, just a readiness. I know folks are trying to figure out where they can cut costs elsewhere so it doesn't get passed along to the consumer. But gee, we, you know, we've been looking far and wide for those opportunities for quite some time. It's pretty hard to come by. Well, I think one of the unspoken things I think that's happening right now is that folks are trying to evaluate whether their supply chains are in violation of U.S. sanctions. I mean, that's one very obvious thing that's happening. Um, it's happening at my house right now. My husband's trying to sort out that, that exact thing for his company. So that's one thing. We've talked about the great kind of supply chain realignment that comes out of COVID, but I also think there's going to be a less dramatic, but a supply chain realignment that comes out of this. And it's going to be increasingly clear that the countries your supply chain runs through matters again. Didn't matter five years ago, right? It was the great globalization and we had integrated and we were all kind of one big economy. And boy, that is fractured dramatically in the last couple of years. So I imagine that's going to be a big part of the story. If you'd let us take you in the direction a little bit of geopolitics, Marianne, one of the interesting derivatives of this whole scenario has been the strengthening of global alliances, particularly of Western democracies. And I'm thinking NATO, but also European Union and some of the different financial alliances. We had been heading for several decades, if you will, or at least a, a decade of a fraying of those alliances in the post-World War II order. Do you see this as something that will kind of put us back in the realm of now strengthening those alliances from trade relationships, not let alone security relationships? I think undoubtedly. And I actually think you can't separate those things. I think the security relationship is going to ultimately sort of dictate the trading relationship because of the surprises that we've experienced in the last two years. And if you don't feel like you have a trust in that government, right, or know that that government is going to be without its surprises. And I really do think the value of a democracy has risen tremendously over the last 24 months. There's just a complete separation really in the world order between countries that abide by a set of rules that the U.S. abides by and a set of countries that don't. And we ignored that separation for many years in, in the business community. I mean, not just supply chains, but just in general. And I think those are not going to be ignored anymore. I also remember when I came to the University of Tennessee 13 years ago, we had a, an emphasis in our undergraduate education. It was called Ready for the World. 
Okay. And it was all about training our students to work in global business. And, you know, GSCI notwithstanding, over the last 13 years, that emphasis in undergraduate education has almost disappeared. There's just been very little interest in training students to work globally. That's just not been where we've spent our time and money. And I think that's over. I think we're back to, okay, it actually matters. International relations matters. These understanding how NATO works, how the EU works, all of that matters again. I feel sorry for the students who graduated in the last five years that we didn't teach any of this stuff because we didn't think it mattered anymore. We were over that and it's back. And so my colleagues here on campus who study international relations are grateful for their renewed attention in some ways. Of course, the great wild card in this conversation is what China's reaction to all this is going to be. And I mean, they're equivocating quite a bit in terms of the public statements they're making. But if they get in line and create alliances economically with Russia, that will change things a lot. And if they don't, that will change things a lot. You can envision a world where they cozy up to Russia and we basically have two fully separate global economies functioning. There's the authoritarian economy and there's the economy of democracies. Gee, as a 1977 high school graduate, where have I seen this world before? (laughs) It's back. We're back. It's back. Well, hey, if given an opportunity to choose sides, I know which side I'm taking. But (laughs) it's interesting to talk about those lost 10 years that you speak of. And and I I think you're right. There's, There's been a lot of focus on things that might be more directly within one's control. I can't help but point out, though, that our MS supply chain, as well as all of our other supply chain programs, really speak of trying to manage the end-to-end supply chain uh, to the greatest extent possible. And you can't manage what you don't see or don't understand. And I think that what I'm taking away from this conversation certainly underscores further the need to understand who makes up your supply chain. Very basic supply chain exercise that I always ask my students to do is to map the supply chain for a basic product. And even a simple product very quickly you know, becomes quite complex when you like look at a granola bar, for example, like a granola bar as a prime example, <laughs> or a Tennessee whiskey, what have you. Uh, you know, pretty quickly, you're realizing that things go beyond the comfy confines of, uh, of your nation. And just frankly, just companies have not realized and appreciated where the stuff comes from. It's only after the fact when there's a shortage, price surge, or, or they just simply cannot access it. And I was just on a webinar yesterday, in fact, where that question was posed in terms of whether or not your supply chain is in full compliance. And you two will probably not be surprised by the outcome, but a very significant share of the respondents said they just did not know. There were 10% who just outright said no, but then about another 50% who said, we have no idea. And so there's so much work that needs to be done in understanding where things come from and where we're overly dependent and, and designing supply chains that uh, are sustainable. The last 24 months, risk management has gone from something that was somewhat of an abstract thought and temporary project that companies would go through for a couple of days a year to something that is vital to the everyday lifeblood of a company. Hey, we've got to wrap soon, but Marianne, before you go, I want to get your take on something else that I've been seeing as as somewhat surprising. And that is for the first time in memory, private organizations are going beyond what government sanctions require them to do. So all these private companies that are announcing that they're suspending operations in Russia, even prior to the U.S. government posing sanctions on Russian oil, several oil companies in the U.S. and globally have said that they will not buy Russian oil. Any insight on that? 
Are you involved in Russia is the new ESG question. When 85% of the American public is for something, you as an American-based company are not going to be against it. And it's rare that you find an issue where the black and white is so clear for the American public right now. I mean, we're typically divided 50-50 about every single issue, right? And this is not one of those. And so any company who can be charged with making a profit in Russia right now is dead in the water just from a consumer perspective. And then also, of course, from the perspective of their shareholders. I don't think these decisions were very hard. I'll be honest with you. I don't think there was a whole lot of debate. Maybe the easiest thing they've done in the boardroom in a while. Well, as always, Marianne, fascinating points. Um, You bring up things from a perspective that I think a lot of us in supply chain don't necessarily think of. Thank you so much for joining us again. We look forward to having you on again, hopefully not about some other crisis, just but about, you know, some of the things that you're routinely doing in your day to day life. Again, bringing your insights is always uh, really, really valuable to us and hopefully to our listeners. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.